Good morning. My name is Jared Boyd. I'm the student pastor here at Westwood, and I'm excited to open up our Bibles together this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today, so if you want to go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. And I don't know about y'all, but this summer has been long. It's been good, but it's been exhausting. Has it not been to anybody else? For, for, for me, it's been an exhausting. Stay-at-home moms are probably like, yeah, it's been exhausting. But uh, maybe some of you, especially if there's any teenagers in here, you're like, no, it's been way, way too short. But uh, summer gives me the chance to hang out with my best buddy a lot, uh, Judson, my oldest son, my only son. Uh, and Judson here in the picture uh, pointing, we're, we go on something called Man Ventures periodically throughout the summer, throughout the year, and we go hiking and fishing and camping, and, and so I'm trying to teach him a love for the outdoors, we love the outdoors, and so, but, but Judson's hair, strange connection, always reminds me of Rob Schneider, the, the great comedian Rob Schneider. He's got a short list of movies that I like, and uh, one of them is the, uh, the classic 1993 comedy, Surf Ninjas. Has anybody by crazy chance, ever seen the movie Surf Ninjas? My man, all right. We got one in here with an amen. All right, so Surf Ninjas, old movie, comedy. Rob Schneider plays this geek. He likes the idea of surfing. He plays the part of being like a surfer dude. You know, he knows the lingo. When he goes out with his surfer friends, he has the wetsuit. He has his own board. He waxes it down, and that's what he does. When he goes to the beach while all his buddies go surfing, he just says, I just got to sit and wax my board. And he's got like three inches of wet waxes for, for grip while you're surfing. He's got like three-inch coat of wax on his board because that's all he ever does. While all his buddies goes and surf, he kind of just waits and, and waxes his board. And when he sees them start to kind of be done and wrapping up and start heading into the beach, he runs out like he's ready to go finally. And they're like, hey, man, we're done. And he's like, oh, oh, like he actually wanted to surf. He never wanted to surf. He just liked the idea of surfing. He doesn't actually want in on surfing, right? It's, it's a little too dangerous for him. He just likes the idea of it. And I think uh, many of us like the idea of following Jesus. I think the problem is many of us are we're too, uh, we're too afraid of following Jesus where it might take us. It's too costly. There's too, there's too much cost, it's too time-consuming, whatever it might be. Many of us in here don't actually follow Jesus. We just like the idea of following Jesus. Now, I feel there's such a weight of distraction in our church family, even in our, our room today. And I think it's, it's worth addressing right off the bat. And, uh, and I think it begins with, with the sin in our hearts that steals our affections, our our time, our attention, our minds. And, I, and I, I'd like to do something a little different this morning. I'd like for us, if you're physically capable, I want us to turn around. I want us to kneel at our chairs this morning. We're going to go ahead and do that. If you're physically capable, I want us to turn around. I want us to kneel at our chairs, and I want us to pray and ask God to reveal the distractions in our lives. And if you're not, you can still pray this prayer with us. I just want to get us in a posture of surrender this morning. And I want us to pray two things. I want us to pray, first of all, that God would reveal to us the distractions in our life, even in this moment, even in our, our day-to-day, in this season, whatever it might be. Just pray that God would reveal that distraction to you. 
so that you can repent from it and hear from him this morning. And then secondly, I want you to pray to yourself in just a second, God, make me a fisher of men. And so let's do that. I'll wrap this up in a second. So God, show us what it is that we need to get out of our lives. All these distractions. All these American distractions. All these dreams that we have. Even in the moment distractions, God. I pray that you would rid us of all of those things. That we can turn from them. And obey you. And follow you. And ultimately, God, I pray that you would make us fishers of men. And also pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can sit back down. Well, as I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And so we're going to begin in verse 9 this morning. Verse 9, we're going all the way through 20. And periodically, I'm going to stop and give us some context. But we're going to be starting in verse 9. In verse 9. And, and it begins with this. Mark Mark. The Gospel of Mark uh, wastes no time getting straight into Jesus' ministry. He doesn't give a birth or a growing up of Jesus' account. He just gets straight to Jesus' ministry. And so in verse 9 it says this, In, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Jesus being baptized has nothing to do with him needing forgiveness of sin. That would erase the gospel, right, because Jesus lived the perfect life. He didn't need forgiveness of sin. So what in the world is going on? Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 14 tells us that Jesus didn't need forgiveness of sin. But verses 10 and 11 in Mark tell us why he was being baptized. So we continue. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And so God's declaration about Jesus is actually a quote from two Old Testament verses. The first is Psalm verse 7, chapter 2. And the second is Isaiah 42, 1. The psalm is a messianic psalm about a coming king, a messianic king who's going to come and, and save the world. And then in Isaiah 42, 1, it's about a suffering servant. But it's both, both of them are messianic. They're about a coming Messiah who's going to come and fulfill these roles, one of son and one of servant, one of a king and one of a suffering servant servant. And so it's, I just think it's cool just out the gate that God quotes the Bible. Like he declares about Jesus. If, there, if there's any need this morning for validity in the scriptures, you've, you've got it because God even quotes himself. He quotes the Old Testament. That's pretty cool. So God quotes these two passages declaring his son the, the, the Messiah. But it wasn't just to declare. Jesus didn't get baptized just to hear that he is the, the one, the Savior of the world, but also to receive the Spirit. And then I would say a third reason that we find is, is because he was giving us an example to follow and the command that he was going to give just before his ascension to go, therefore, and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. He could tell you to do that because he did that himself. He was baptized. And can we just think for a second about how the, how the Savior of the world, Jesus, the God-man, waited 
to begin his ministry until he received the Spirit. Jesus, God in flesh, even waited on the power of the Spirit before he began his ministry. That's an unbelievable truth that we get to claim in Christ, in his Spirit that we have, because the same Spirit that abided in Jesus 2,000 years ago to do his ministry abides in us. That's amazing. I think it's oftentimes we forget this. Uh, recently, me and Megan uh, in our neighborhood, we, we go and we, we do something called care through prayer. We do prayer walks in our neighborhood. To, and, uh, and while we're walking, sometimes we'll go up to a door and knock and see if there's anything that we can pray for the household for and ask God to help them with. And so we'll, we'll do that. And, and when we began, I remember we were walking up to a house one time. We were both kind of feeling this like, ah, I just feel like uh, I just feel like a salesman or some, from some other different religion. Now, if you're a salesman, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying you've got a hard job. Because people are really closed off these days, right? You hear a doorbell these days, and you're like, oh, hide the kids. Everybody hit the deck. Who in the world could be possibly at our house right now? Right? And so when you knock at a door now, it's kind of you're like, man, I just you know, feel that they're, they're just going to, they're not going to like us. And Megan reminded, you know, we have to remind ourselves often. Megan reminded me that day, we have something that they don't. We have the spirit. We have the power of the gospel in our message. And we have everything that we need. And so that same truth that Jesus waited for the power of the Spirit is true for us today. That's beautiful. So take comfort, Westwood. We live in the power of the Spirit. So we continue, verses 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Notice that Mark emphasizes two things that he, I think he emphasizes here. The first is a word he uses frequently throughout his gospel account, the word immediately. Immediately after Jesus receives the Spirit, he's driven into the wilderness. And this is the only thing in all of the gospels, this is the only time, the only work where the Spirit is mentioned. This is it. Besides the Spirit descending upon Jesus, this is the only work of the Spirit mentioned in the entire gospel accounts, all four. And it's the Spirit sending Jesus to be tempted. And so I think it's highlighting something. I think the absence of the Spirit's work in the rest of the Gospels through Jesus is highlighting his work of allowing Jesus, sending Jesus, commissioning Jesus to be tempted for 40 days. I think we shouldn't be surprised when after a powerful work of the Spirit or some powerful work of grace in our life, maybe following salvation, you should not be surprised when trials come. I mean, it should, it should not be a shock because our Savior, after receiving the Spirit, even experienced 40 days of intense temptation and trial from, from Satan himself. I mean, we, we know what Satan does, what he's all about. He, he hates us, right? He's, he's the one that has come to steal and kill and destroy us. And so I, I, it's no surprise that when we're at our highest, Satan wants to steal from us so that when we're at our lowest, he can kill and destroy us. So we shouldn't be surprised that this happens to Jesus, and we shouldn't be surprised in our own lives. But verses 14 through 15 continue, and it says, After John, who just baptized Jesus, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is equating the gospel 
literally good news, with the coming of the kingdom of God at hand. That's a big deal. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus, this, this reign, this rule and reign that Jesus is bringing is near. Because at his death and resurrection, the spirit is going to be equipped within believers far and wide to push back the kingdom of darkness with the gospel. And we don't do that just by bearing his image far and wide. Right? That, that, that commission, that command was given since the beginning when God first created Adam and Eve. He made them image bearers. In his own image, he created a man and woman. He created them. And then he said, I want you to multiply, be, be fruitful and multiply. He wanted his image bared all across the face of the earth, filled with his glory through his humans, the only image bearers in his, all of his creation. And so we do that by displaying the character of God, loving people well, loving our wives well, being merciful, gracious, just, all the things that God is. We, we display his character far and wide, but it gives us a more specific way that we spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. And it's in verses 16 through 20, and that's where we're going to focus the rest of our time this morning. Jesus passes alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they, they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, casting their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants and followed Jesus. And Mark uses several different words when he's talking about following in reference to discipleship throughout his gospel. And they all kind of come and culminate together to mean really three primary things. The first is attachment to a person. The second is acceptance to authority, submitting to the person that you're attaching yourself to, submitting to their authority, accepting their authority. And the third is imitation of example. And so all three are at at play here when Jesus says, follow me. And here's the deal. When we, I have to remind ourselves often of this in student ministry. I have to remind, anytime I want to preach, I want to remind us this. And I have to remind myself this most times when I'm reading the Bible because I often forget what exactly we're doing. When we read, when we hear scripture being read, it's as if God himself is speaking. And so the same call that goes out to Simon and Andrew and, and Peter and John is the same call to us today. He's saying, follow me. Imitate me. Attach yourself to me. Submit to me. And really, I think there's four questions that are answered in this passage. And to be able to hear those, I, my, my prayer for us today, Westwood, is that we would hear Hebrews 3.15, that when you hear his voice, you don't harden yourself, you don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Let's not harden our hearts today. I believe that God has a word for us this morning because he's speaking through his word. So let's listen. Here's the four questions that are answered, I believe, in, in verses 16 through 20. The first is who. Who does Jesus call? And I think it's quite clear the unqualified are called very unqualified people. They weren't qualified. Jesus turns the typical rabbinical process on its head. 
The typical process was a rabbi would choose within kind of a, an apprentice rabbi school the best of the best. Who were the up-and-coming candidates? And he would sift through their candidates, and they would choose the best of the best. Jesus turns that on its head, right? Because even in, a, even in that process, you have people who are in that school. So there's a, there's a pre-required interest on the disciples' part. But here in Jesus' process of discipleship, Jesus comes to them. He initiates, and he doesn't choose from the best of the best. He doesn't choose between people who are, like, lining up to follow Jesus. He goes to their own profession, lay people, in trades, fishermen, zealots who are militant, tax collectors, thieves, and he picks them. The worst of the worst, and it reminds us of that First Corinthians passage, 26 to 29 in chapter 1, where Paul tells us that, remember your calling. Like you, you weren't special. Not many were wise of noble birth. Instead, God chose the weak, the low, the despised, so that no one could boast. And I've observed this to be true in our culture. You probably have too. When we counsel or teach students that come from homes that, that don't really know much brokenness, they've been around, you know, they've never really tasted death before, often grow up in good homes, maybe, maybe wealthy homes, some, you know, good, good health, good looks, prosperous in, in every aspect of life. And they don't really connect well whenever we talk about the gospel a lot because they don't really understand brokenness. You know, we, we try to explain, you know, the gospel, right? And, and it begins in brokenness that because of our sin, we, we have this broken, unsatisfied life. And we try to fill the voids with all kinds of things. We try to go after anything that will satisfy and, and mend our broken hearts. But the problem is none of that works. And, and they're like, brokenness? My life's great. What are you talking about? They, they don't connect with brokenness. Jesus echoes this. He knows this because he says in Matthew 19, 23, it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's very difficult. Borderline impossible. He says it's harder, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I don't think he's just talking about wealth monetarily. I think he's talking about an anything, just wealth, just we're so prosperous. This is why it's the hardest place in the world to be a Christian is America. We're the most prosperous nation. We're consumed with ourselves. Mark 2.17 says it's not the healthy. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous but the sick. Nobody wakes up. Nobody woke up this morning who was nice and healthy and thought, you know, I feel great. My fingers feel great. My toes feel I just want to go and make sure, though. I just want to make sure. I just got to go to the doctor quick before I, get, before I hit the church this morning. I got to go make sure, get x-rays, make sure everything's working and functioning well. Nobody, unless we got a hypochondriac in here, nobody did that. Because you, you felt fine. You didn't need to go to the doctor. And, and so many of us in here have, like so many of us in the church, so many of us don't wake up and think, I need Jesus. I'm so sick and broken today. And that's our problem. 
He's calling all of us. The problem is many of us don't think of ourselves as broken. Jesus calls the unqualified because it makes us boast in him, not us. Galatians 6.14. But the second question that's answered is why. So we know who. He calls the unqualified, but why does he call us? Why does Jesus call us? And it's given right there in verse 17. This is beautiful. Verse 17, we'll read it again. If I can find it. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. He calls them and gives them the end goal right out the gate. He wants to make us fishers of men. And the call, the disciples have a picture of what they're going to be doing one day. He, he, he gives them an example, even in their call, that one day you're going to be making fishers of men. So we ha- they have a picture of what they're going to be doing, even in their own call. And immediately Jesus gives the goal. And it's not just simply to see them saved from sin. It's not just simply to see them become followers of Christ. It's not just simply that they will become good citizens in their country and respectable and have integrity. It's not just simply to see them grow in their faith. Those are going to be byproducts of his true end goal, which is, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's my goal. That's the goal of me calling you. Jesus attaches salvation with mission. And he will not let them be separated. You cannot be a disciple of mine and not be a disciple maker. It's impossible to follow Jesus and not fish for men. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, here's the big word repeated throughout the passage, reconciled us to himself. He put two things that were at odds. God and man, because of our sin, torn apart. We're called God-haters, and we're at odds. And he reconciled us through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciled us so that we would have this ministry of reconciling others. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have been made new so that we would be ambassadors, representatives for Christ. It is impossible to be made new and not be an ambassador, and you cannot be an ambassador unless you're new. It's impossible. You cannot divorce those two. You can't be a new creation, a disciple, and not love fishing for people. It's a core conviction. It's the end game that Christ laid out from the beginning of his ministry. 2 Timothy 2.2 puts it this way. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You can count four generations of hearers and doers in this passage. Paul entrusted to Timothy this message of reconciliation so that he could train others who would be able to teach others. See, Paul attaches discipleship with evangelism because Jesus attaches the two. As God's people, I think it's in the church, it's so easy for us to 
see salvation as the end goal in the kingdom work. We celebrate baptisms. We celebrate salvations well. We celebrate them numerically. We preach that well. But salvation is not the end goal. It's the beginning. We want to see believers becoming fishers who raise up other fishers who raise up other fishers and so on and so on. And until we see a new fisherman become a trainer of another fisherman, really we don't have. Well, we can celebrate with the angels, but we haven't reached Jesus' goal. The end goal is fishermen training other fishermen until there's no one left to train because everybody's heard the gospel. Oftentimes, we divorce those two words, discipleship and evangelism, and we think of discipleship as this Bible study time. Right, we're going to church for discipleship this morning, which is why we have problems with people that are, that are walking around so unhealthy. Because we puff ourselves up with discipleship head knowledge. Because we learn how to study the Bible and we do nothing with it. We don't train anybody. We just fill ourselves up with this head knowledge and we don't ever exercise. And we call it discipleship because we were never meant to be discipled and study the Bible so that we would just keep it. We were meant to sponge it out and be ambassadors and exercise it for others. So we know who and why, but when does Jesus call us to obey? And the answer is immediately. We see this example that disciples laid out in verses 18 and 20. In verses 18 and 20, we see uh, James and John, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. They're, they're fishing, and, and immediately Jesus calls them. Immediately he calls them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. Bang, on the spot. They left their job on the spot. They left their family on the spot, it was immediately. There was no delaying in following Jesus. How many students, teenagers and college students, just like think to themselves, yeah, I, I get it, I get it, I need to follow Jesus. And I, I believe I probably do. I believe that's probably a good life. But right now, there's too much fun to be had. There's too many friends to make. There's too much to achieve. And my goodness, my parents exemplified it. They said college was a fun time. It's whenever you can kind of just go a little crazy. I had a crazy stage, son. And when you go to college, you can have a crazy stage too, but just make sure you get your family back in the church like we did. One day it'll be okay to follow Jesus, but right now, I'm not ready for that. One day, when the season's over, we'll follow Jesus. I saw a quote recently that every Sunday morning you're preaching a sermon to your kids. And the sermon is, what matters to us? Do we actually follow Jesus or do we follow everything else that this life has to offer? Because everything else, I've I, got to keep mending my nets. Because I've got to, I've got to learn this trade. I've got, to, I've got to make money before I follow Jesus. I've got to do this before I follow Jesus. When has life ever been in order? I mean, some, some of us are like, I'll get my life in order and then I'll follow Jesus. Has life ever been in order? 
There's no convenient time to follow Jesus. That's the point. Following Jesus is total surrender. There's no amount of cleaning up of your life you can do to prepare yourself for following Jesus. You can't clean yourself. That's the point of why Christ came. He lived the clean life so that he could clean you up at salvation so that you would go clean others through the power of Christ in you. And you don't delay in that call. And fourthly, what does Jesus call us to? What does he call us to? It's obedience at great cost. It's going to cost us greatly to follow Jesus. They left a lucrative business, James and John. They left their family. They left it all behind to follow Jesus. There's no half-hearted following Jesus. You can follow Jesus or you can follow Satan. Jesus paints it clearly. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve money and God. It's impossible. I think many of us struggle with compartmentalizing Jesus. It's like a, a thing that we can take on a shelf and put it away and and, and we, we, we put it, get them back on Sundays, and then we put them away on Monday, and we kind of compartmentalize Jesus. The rest of our week, we have our relationships with work and coworkers and family and friends, and, and then we go, we go do Jesus on Sundays. And we talk about this often, but, man, it's so hard. In going all in for Jesus, James and John had to leave a lot behind. It was costly. But Jesus also modeled this cost. This wasn't something he just called them to. He exemplified the cost. He would eventually, in three years, find himself innocent, sinless, paying the ultimate price, giving his own life for the sake of the world, taking our sins. And he took the cost of death so that we could go free. As Romans 6, 4 tells us, because we've been united with Christ at salvation, we die. When Christ died, we died. Where, where are your sins right now, Christian? The answer is on a cross 2,000 years ago, because when Christ died, you died. And it costs you your life. We are required to give up everything to follow Jesus in his death, and thank God that we're united with him in his resurrection. There's a cost of following Jesus. Are you willing to give up your life? Are you willing to give up your schedule, your money, your comfort, relationships? Are you willing to say, like the old hymn, take the world, but just give me Jesus? And I think a lot of us are probably thinking, this is not the Christianity I signed up for back in 88 at VBS. Like, it, it, this is, this is, that's your version of Christianity. <sighs> Maybe we haven't known the real biblical Christianity. If your life, your schedule, your money, your relationships look just like the world, the only thing different is your attendance on Sundays and your Bible knowledge. You've been following something, but it's not Jesus. 
being united with Jesus as his disciple beings united with him in his suffering and fishing. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. So my brother a few years back drove up on a interstate single wreck, single car accident. And uh, while he was still a good distance away, some cars were already pulling over and, uh, and kind of checking out the scene. And, and everybody was kind of out of their cars, like on, on the phone, presumably calling 911. Jay drives up, and people have already had a chance to get down there. <laughs> but there was a great many of bystanders, and this is what we call the bystander effect. Jay was the first one on the scene to actually go and attend to the guy in the car. And it's this social phenomenon called the bystander effect, right, where you've got this uh, this, this emergency situation, this crisis has happened, maybe like somebody choking in a restaurant and there's so many people around that everybody kind of looks at each other and you've got precious seconds, minutes wasting away and nobody's attending to the person in need because everybody assumes that somebody else is going to do something. What a picture of the crisis in our world. We have billions who've never even heard the name of Jesus. We have coworkers, we have family members who don't know Jesus, and we're so comfortable keeping this to ourselves in our own little version of this Christianity where we just consume. And we never truly become who Jesus has called us to be in following him, which is make fishers of men. And we become bystanders assuming that somebody else will tell them. Charles Spurgeon, who we quote on the daily at Westwood apparently, says this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap over to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Are we going to be bystanders or actual believers that fish for men? Do we want in? Or do we just like the idea of being in? Do we just like Jesus for what he gives us? Comfortable Sunday morning Christianity. Let's just imagine, let's close by imagining a world where everybody hears the gospel. Let's imagine a Shelby County where every single person hears the gospel. What would it look like? What would it look like for Westwood to become so laser focused on what Jesus was laser focused on? Raising up fishers of men who would make fishers of men. What if we really believed that God was so big that His Spirit really was powerful like we say He is? That if we actually obeyed Jesus' commands, that He could do it, that He could reach Shelby County through us, that He could reach the world through us in our generation? Do we believe it? If not, let's at least pray. So Kevin's going to come up. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to close out. Because I believe we serve a living God who's equipped us with the Spirit. And He can absolutely do that.